in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter number 4, you remember the Shunammite woman, Elijah prayed for her. She had no child and uh, asked his servant to ask her what she needed, what she could use. We've got rooms. We've got three rooms in our fellowship hall, three bedrooms in our fellowship hall. Two missionaries from the Philippines have been out there for two months. One of them left yesterday. The other one will leave in a few days. Then Brother Wilson, Sarah Pauly from India, he'll be out here, over here, and he'll stay out here for a couple of months as he visits church, churches while in the States. The idea from these rooms and rooms scattered all over the world that we call prophets' rooms came from a Shunammite woman. The Bible calls her very great, or calls her a great woman. She was great in substance and she was great in her faith. So the servant told Elijah, said she doesn't have a child. He said, okay. He spoke to the woman. He said, about this time of the year, next year, you're going to have a son. She said, don't play with my faith. I'm okay being who I am. I'm okay among my, to dwell among my people. I don't need anything sensational, need nothing outlandish. We built you a room with a desk, a table, a little piece of light, and a bed. So that when you pass by, we can feed you and you can go up in that room and you can find lodging. Um, she said, you, I'm content with being who I am. And he said, no, it's going to be that way. And so she had a little boy. Somewhere between six and eight years after the child was born, he went with his father to work in the fields. And his head, as a matter of fact, he said, my head, my head. And... Some think it was a heat stroke. We don't have any way of knowing what it was. But the father had a servant take the son back to the mother. She sat upon his lap, and then about noontime he died. She took the little boy up to that room, put him on the bed. She got a servant, and she made a beeline to Elijah. Elijah saw her coming from a ways out and sent Gehazi out. Ask her, what was wrong? Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with your son? And she sent word back. She said, it shall be well. As a matter of fact, she told her husband that. Her husband won't know what she needed, a horse and chariot and a servant to go see the preacher for. It's neither new, born, new moon nor Sabbath. In other words, it's not preaching time. What in the world? She said, it shall be well. She's all right. If the boy rises from the dead, she's all right. And if he doesn't, She's all right, but she's going to do everything on her end she can to seek God on behalf of her son. Of course, you remember Gehazi went out and asked her, is it well? Is it well with thee? Is it well with thine husband? Is it well with the son, with the boy? She wanted to see Elijah. And you remember whenever she's able to see him, she fetches Elijah. Gehazi was dispatched, but she had heard Gehazi preach and she had heard Elijah preach. She said, I want to see Elijah. Elijah's our friend. He's God's man. I want to see Elijah. You remember Elijah goes back, goes up on the bed, puts his nose to the little boy's nose, eyes to eyes, breathes upon him. God raises him from the dead, but she was willing to accept it if God didn't raise the child from the dead. You remember in the New Testament, the apostle Paul was behind bars. He's locked up. There are men on the outside that are breathing 
they're chanting death to him. Some had vowed to not eat another bite of food until they saw the apostle Paul dead. And the Bible says, And the night following the Lord stood by me and said, It shall be well, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so shall thou also must thou also bear witness of me at Rome. It's well with God's people, right? Mr. Spafford that penned the song that Miss Wanda just sung, uh, he lost a lot of investments, was almost destitute, sent his family ahead to England before him on a, uh, on a seagoing vessel, and it went down at sea. And, of course, the four girls, and they died at sea. And the wife survived, sent a telegram back home that said, Saved Alone. He gets aboard a cruise liner and starts across the Atlantic. And as he does, when they get about to where that ship went down, um, the captain or one of the captain's attendants told Mr. Spafford, this is about where the girls went down and died. And he pinned the words to that song. It is well. This morning, Ronald Roberts, a dear friend of mine, Ronald called early. Uh, his, their church had sent them to the beach. He and his wife, they have five children. And he got a call, a little four-year-old baby had made her way into the grandmother's neighbor's backyard. They don't know how the little fella got in there. They have a pool. You know the rest of the story. So Ronald got up at 3 o'clock this morning, headed back to Ellenboro, North Carolina. He said, preacher, they've got to take her off the life support. And he said, the family seems to be resting in Christ during this time. It's not a devil in hell understands that, is there? This world's not a friendly place. It's not a fair place. Donald said he was making mention in a service last night that uh, we we are going to leave. We live like, of course. We think we're going to live here forever, but we're going to leave this walk of life. We're going to leave this walk of life. And I trust it's well with you today. Be finding, if you will, Luke chapter number 4. I trust it is well. If not, we trust it will be well before leaving today. Thank you, Miss Wanda, for singing that song. I love songs that have um, significance, reminds us that we rest in Christ, we trust Christ. The entire Bible is about Christ and the redemption he offers and the strength, grace, and, and help he affords his people in this walk of life. Luke chapter 4, we're going back to the same text we've looked to for the two previous messages, and the Lord willing, it's my intention to finish the text today. Luke 4, as you find verse 38, if you can and will, would you join us by standing? We'll honor the Word of God that we're reading from this morning as our text for the message. We'll honor the Word of God together by standing for the reading of our text. Luke 4, verse 38 through 44, and he arose out of the synagogue, and entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and ministered unto them. And when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And, and devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God, he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. 
And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Thank you for standing. We're picking up, this is our third look at this particular text. We've not got out uh, of the first heading, really, and the two final headings are very brief. Take a very brief look at them, but we do intend to finish today looking at this section where Christ's ministry continues now in Capernaum. We'll be speaking under three headings. Of course, you'll find these headings marked off by a phrase in each of the divisions of this text. There's an afternoon miracle in the home of Simon Peter. Verse number 38 begins with letting us know that. And he arose out of the synagogue. Remember, he's been in the synagogue at Capernaum. He's recently been rejected in Nazareth at the synagogue. That's where he was raised. Now, his home base is Capernaum. Most believe his home base, his home of his home base is Simon Peter's home. And no doubt Simon Peter's mother-in-law lives there. The Bible says, and he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. You'll find that the second division marks itself off beginning in verse number 40. And you'll find evening miracles at the front door of Simon Peter. We'll point that out from Mark's account when we get to it. But the first phrase of verse 40 says, now when the sun was setting. See, it's going to give us an evening scene. Then in verse number 42, there are morning movements as Christ prepares to preach throughout Galilee. Verse 42, we'll mark that off where the Bible says, and when it was day. Just a little bit of review, very little review. And um, But you remember, we, we've talked about how that he's come out of the synagogue at Nazareth, now in the synagogue the first Sabbath after he moves to Capernaum. He does as was his custom, was his habit, it was his life. He goes to the synagogue. We know that he preached that day. We don't know what he preached. We do know when we saw him in the synagogue at Nazareth, we know the text he preached from. That is given to us in the Gospels. But we don't know what he preached from other than it being Old Testament scripture. And then he healed a man that was possessed with an unclean spirit. And then word got out and Christ is magnified in Capernaum and even beyond brings us into this text here just now. Another miracle. There's been a miracle. It's been an exciting morning at the synagogue. And now Simon, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John go with Jesus into Peter's home. And, uh, and then that there's going to be a miracle here. We've already preached on it twice thus far, so you know what the miracle is. The mother-in-law is sick. She's a very ill woman, and Christ is going to heal her. We, of course, I'll say more about it in just a moment. We see Peter's devotion to the Lord in the text. He desires Christ in his home. He desires Christ in his home. I've met, met I wouldn't know, at, at the people through the years, maybe it would be a wife that had a desire that, that Christ would reign in her home. Or a husband. I recently had a pastor from another state, the state of Georgia. He was talking to me, and he said, look, he said, I know a lot of churches Across the south, a lot of churches, there are more women than there are men. But he said, I've got four men in the church. He said, they come and they bring their children, but their wives will not come with them. 
And he said, they're good mothers as far as that goes, good wives, but they care nothing about Christ or the things of Christ. Peter desires fellowship with Christ in his home. His devotion is seen. But you remember, we've talked about how that a problem has developed in the home. The Bible says in verse number 38, giving us, giving us a description of the sickness that Simon's wife's mother, the Bible says, that she has. Verse number 38 says, and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. She's in the grip of a great fever. She's a seriously ill woman. This wasn't expected. This has come upon her. It wasn't exceptional because of malaria as well as fevers and various sicknesses back in these days was very common. It was very common for a man or a woman or a child to fall ill, deathly ill. Of course, they didn't have modern medicines as we, as you and I have today. But this is not something that's necessarily exceptional. Oftentimes we think when we're sick, nobody's been sick just like us. You know, the running joke is that a man catches a cold and, and the woman has to take off work and uh, begin a new career to help him nurse him back to health, you know. Uh, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't unusual for people to have great needs, great sicknesses, and it just come upon them and nothing could be done. I've spoken to you before about uh, where Brother Lane Finley pastors, Lebanon Baptist Church up in Tippa County. It's been some years, but for a number of years I preached there in revivals or in his Bible conference. And before an evening service, they'll meet between 5 and 5.30 and eat a meal. And then I'd go outside and just walk and pray until service time. And you walk out by the cemetery. There's the grave of a dad. There's the grave of a mother. And then seven children or eight right out beside. And I remember asking Brother Lane about that. I said, I keep noticing. Uh, and all the children died young. They weren't infants. They were up. Uh, you know, anywhere from maybe three or four years old up to about maybe 10 years of age. And he said, Brother Kevin, I've asked about it and said the old timers around here said that was back in days when doctors made house calls and something would come through and, and there was just no way to get them to a hospital or anything. And those children, all those children over a few years period, all those children died because of sickness that came through uh, Tippa County many years ago. The Bible says, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. The psalmist wrote, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Eliphaz would say to Job in his trials, yet man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job himself, sitting in the ash heap, said, um, man, uh, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Simon Peter would write in the New Testament, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Now, we all want to be prayed for. We want our loved ones prayed for. Somebody said the difference in major surgery and minor surgery is minor surgery is when it's on somebody else. Major sur surgery is when it's on us. And I tend to agree with that. That's when we go to taking it serious. A serious situation uh, is, is here in the home. This brings about a disturbance in the home. Verse number 39 lets us know that because the Bible says of Christ that he rebuked, he rebuked the fever and immediately it left her. And, and, and it seems that after we get to a place that we've seen God move, I, I think that's probably when we're most vulnerable to Satan's attacks and the world's allurements. I think we're more vulnerable. I think it's at those times that we're not as sober, vigilant, and sober 
as Simon Peter admonished us to be. I think maybe we take things for granted. As a matter of fact, without trial and affliction and sickness, without trouble along the way, we become soft. And it is during times of great need that we take that need to the Lord and we're keenly aware of our surroundings. We're keenly aware of our own weaknesses and smallness at times. And our need is what connects us to Christ and keeps us close by. Um, the Bible says he rebuked this fever. He's going to rebuke other uh, unclean spirits before the text is finished. He's just come from the synagogue. He rebuked an unclean spirit there. He has to rebuke in the home. He has to rebuke uh, in the house of worship as well. We have spoken of the development that trials bring. These weightlifters, uh, these athletes, uh, we have one or two seated with us today. Um, that, uh, and you know, the, the old slogan is no pain, no gain. And without the tearing of a muscle, there cannot be the rebuilding of that muscle. There cannot be the growth of that muscle. And if you bring that over into the spiritual world without a trial, when, when I was, uh, battling gout here a few weeks back and brother Ronnie Owen preached on Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, I was so thrilled to hear him preach and talk about how that God grows his people through sufferings. That is the truth. There's a development in our times of trial that God, that God brings about that you're not going to get anywhere else. We breathe thin air. We just, uh, our heads are too high in the clouds. But when we bow our heads and our hearts before God with a need, we're drawn, we're drawn close to it. The Lord is drawn. Uh, or the Lord is present in this home. A problem has developed, but the Lord is present. He's a guest who is invited. He's desired for fellowship in the home. I shared with you back a few years ago about G. Campbell Morgan. He uh, stood behind the famous pulpit, Westminster Chapel in London, England. You are familiar with Buckingham, and you're familiar with Westminster Abbey. The Abbey is where royalty is married and buried. The abbey is well tended to. When you go in, you don't go in with a loud voice. You have to be extremely quiet. Um, the Church of England to this day and, and, the, and the English, the Brits, they're very respectful of the abbey. If you were to walk out the front door of the abbey, the, the Methodist Church in London that so many, Dinsdale Young and W. Sangster, noted men of the 19th century come out of that church. It's staring you across the street. It's just a huge monument to work that's gone on for hundreds of years there. If you make your way around the abbey and over to the left, you'll cross a few blocks and you'll come to Westminster Chapel where G. Campbell Morgan ministered. You go on up and through the left in about 10 minutes, you can walk over to Buckingham. G. Campbell Morgan was used of God. He was a Spurgeon of sorts of his day. Morgan would take his dad. He and his wife were finally able to save enough for a little down payment and finance a home, and he was so proud to have his daddy travel into London and see the first home they could call their own that they were paying for. Took him into the few rooms that, uh, that uh, the home was comprised of and asked his father what he thought of it, and he said, not much, son. He said, here you are, a Christian minister. He said, I see no nothing on the wall. He said, I didn't even see your Bible anywhere. He said, when visitors visit your home, they should know that Christ is present in this home. He said, you have other furnishings and other decorations, but uh, the, uh, you should offer a Christian witness in your home. 
Christ is desired for fellowship in this home. He sought for healing in this home. This need that his mother-in-law has is a great need. When we take our needs, our great needs to the Lord, we express our faith in him. We exercise our faith in him. We exalt him and we, we honor him. There's a few of you that will remember a time back in 2008 that we didn't say anything. Matthew and Anna were still at home. They were still small. Anna was, I guess she was 11 at the time, maybe 12. She's always had a bit of perception about her. She's always known when I've carried a burden and quietly. Uh, we'd get away to herself. When Amanda prays, she gets off to herself. And Anna's got that about her, and she was praying. We didn't say anything to the kids. There was nothing. We'd got down to almost nothing to eat. There was no money to pay the bills. There was nothing. As a matter of fact, we, we had our place financed at First National. I called my loan officer. I did not have to go 30 days over, but it was humiliating. There'd been a couple of, a couple of months where I would call and I would talk to the dear lady and she'd say, Brother Kevin, you have nothing to worry about. But now if you're the one trying to pay the bill and you don't have the money, you got something to worry about. You got a wife and two kids still at home and there's nothing to eat. You got something to worry about. And I don't know who organized it. I don't know if it's Brother Tracy Quillen or who organized it, Brother Jimmy, but I'll never forget. I showed up, thought I was preaching. I was out, was not in the pastorate at the time. There were two years I was not in the pastorate. And showed up, and somebody had organized a pounding, and they would take an offering that day. And God is my witness. There was over $5,000 taken in the offering. Uh, there was so much food in the pounding. There was so much food, we couldn't get it in our van. Joe Cochran had a pickup truck. We filled it up, and Joe followed us home and stayed until we got it all unloaded. And I'll never forget the scene. You can't see it in my mind, but I can see it like it happened an hour ago. Anna, skinny as a rail, pale as a ghost. She got up. We've never had to wake her up. She got up on her own when she was in high school and would get herself ready. Oftentimes, before we would wake Matthew, sometimes she would wake Matthew. And But she come around in the kitchen. There were still grocery bags, and she would look in them. She looked in the refrigerator. We had a pantry. She opened the door where mom had put a lot of it away. The pantry was full. And she looked at her mother. I was standing right nigh the kitchen, but her, she and her mother was in the kitchen. And I was watching the kid. She turned around to her mother and she said, Mama, we needed the food, didn't we? And she said, Anna, we needed the food. She said, I know, Mama. We've not had anything for a while. She said, Mama, we needed the money, didn't we, to pay the house payment and the light bill. And she said, Anna, we needed the money. And she said, Mama, God has answered prayer, and he's given us something to eat, and he's going to let us pay the house payment, and he's going to let us put, put gas in the vehicle. She said, God never fails us, does he, Mama? And she said, baby, God never fails us. I want to tell you, sometimes we go through, through things that we don't understand, but thank God there's a place we can take our need, and there's a God that can move heaven and earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. David would write, uh, he owns the cattle of a thousand hills. He owns the taters in the hills too. Somebody say amen right there. And here they seek out Christ who is in the home. He's in the home, and a great need exists. You remember, if your babies go through a great time of trial or need, he's still the one to take your need to. We don't believe in some white-haired 
old man sitting on the front porch of eternity somewhere. There's a God in heaven that can move on behalf of his children. Jesus is a guest who is invited. He's a guest who is interested in this home and in this family. He's interested in your home today. He's interested in your family. He's interested in my home, and he's interested in my family. It would be Simon Peter that would be a witness to his mother-in-law being healed. It would be Simon Peter that would write, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Sometimes folk, uh, when hurting greatly, have asked, does Jesus know? And I always say, of course he knows. There's nothing he doesn't know. Well, out in Union, Georgia, back in June, I got Amanda to pack me some popcorn for Ronald Roberts that I mentioned earlier for his boys. His daughter's not old enough for popcorn yet, but one day after the morning service, we go back to the hotel. Ronald and Heather's getting the boys and the little girls out. And I said, Ronald, you mind them having some popcorn? He said, no, preacher. He said, they'll eat that up as soon as they see it. And so the, uh, the second boy, his name is Walker. He has instructed me to call him Clayton. I don't know where that comes from. So I looked in the, looked in the van. I said, I said, Clayton. He said, what? What, preacher? I said, you like popcorn? He said, of course I like popcorn. Have you got some? I said, man, have I got some? I said, my wife sent you some. And he said, well, let's have it. Sometimes people will ask, does Jesus know? Of course he knows. Does Jesus care? Of course he cares. He cares about everyone who is seated on the pew today. Jesus cares. You will remember when the disciples went to Christ, he's in the bottom of the ship. He lies fast asleep. And they come and ask, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Eternity will reveal that no one ever cared for us as much as the Master. Jesus cares. I thought about, uh, I thought about old Dr. Weigel, Charles Weigel. I used to preach some. There was a span of a few years I preached at Robertson Chapel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa for Brother Carol Jones. Brother Carol's with the Lord, been with the Lord for a number of years but I'd mentioned Brother Fred Vault. I'd started a revival. It was in 09. I'd started a revival on Sunday morning. We'd preach through Wednesday night. I'd mentioned Brother Fred Vault. One of the men come to me and said, Preacher, he used to preach for our old preacher every year here. So we got cassette tapes. I said, could I listen to some of it? Brother Fred used to have, Brother Fred Vault used to have Dr. Charles Weigel on Sand Mountain at the girls' home. He'd bring him in there and he, and he would tell Charles Weigel stories. There's I don't know anybody that had as, as many unusual tales to tell as did Dr. Weigel. One time he was preaching in the state of Louisiana. Some years following, he was staying in a cottage that was built for a mother-in-law next door to a home. And some years later, he was back in the little town preaching again. There was a man who walked up to him at the close of the service. He said, you don't know me, Dr. Weigel. You don't know me. But he said, uh, he said, some powerful men were trying to get alcohol legalized here in our city. And, uh, and they wanted you and the pastor of this church. They wanted y'all out. And he said, I was hired to kill you while you were here for those revival services. And he said, most unusual thing. He said, every time I draw a bead on you, he said, an old black cat would jump up on the screen door. He said, every time I draw a bead, whether it be on your head or on your chest, said, that black cat would just jump up on the door and said, I thought when well, I can't shoot the cat, I need to shoot the man. But he said, every time I raise when the, when the, when it, and, and said, Dr. Weigel, brother Vault said, Dr. Weigel said, I remember that. He said, I remember that old cat. He said, most aggravating cat I've ever been around in my life, I guess all week long said he stayed on that door. 
He said, yeah, he stayed on that door. He said, God providentially had him there to save your life. And he said, Dr. Weigel, I have since been saved. And he said, I wanted to come tell you about that and ask you, ask you to pray for me. He was out on the West Coast preaching at a Presbyterian church of all places. And there was a family let him stay in a beach house, had a private area. And, of course, he wrestled with a shark. They put it on the news. He had no idea. Back up on the cliff, there was news people up on the cliff. And they were, they were, they were videoing it and put it on the 5 o'clock of the evening news. When he got ready to go to the church to try to preach, there were so many cars and people. He couldn't, couldn't park close, and so he had to get in a hurry with his Bible trying to get into the service. The police officer said, you can't go in there, sir. Said, uh, said, you can't go in there. And he said, why not? He said, man, he said, I got to get it. He said, you can't go in there. Said, the place is overpacked now. And he said, man, I'm preaching. He said, you that fellow wrestled that man eating shark today to the shore. He said, that's me. He said, get in there. <laughs> Do you know Dr. Wagle's wife left him? A very low place in his life. He was a preacher that traveled this country. Crisscrossed this country. God used him. His wife left him a Dear John letter. She was tired of being married to a preacher. She had to share with churches across America. She was tired of not being able to live the jet-set life. She wanted what the high society life could offer, and Dr. Weigel certainly couldn't offer that on love offerings from churches as he traveled from one church to the other to preach week in and week out. When his wife left and it dawned on him, she's not coming back. She's gone. He ignored the warning signs, and then now it's become a reality. Dr. Weigel would pin down many hymns through the years, but the one he's most famous for is, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. He'd walked out on a pier in the Gulf of Mexico, and was, or in the, in the Gulf, and was going, to throw himself, was going to throw himself off in the ocean and drown and get it all over with. And he later went back home and would speak of it many times through the years. How he felt like it was God himself that kept him from jumping. He said he wanted to end it all. But he said when he went back home off that pier that day, he said, God, give him the words. You pin the words to that song. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something no other friend could do. That chorus, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. I think that's the title, by the way. There's no other friend so kind to see. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. That second verse, he wrote, All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and, and woe. Jesus placed his strong arms about me. And he led me in the way I ought to go. Again, the chorus, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Then that last verse, every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his word of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me. Till someday I see his blessed face above. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind to see. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Master, 
carest thou not that we perish? Of course he cares. I wish you had a little Clayton, a little toe-headed Walker here this morning. I'd just pull his ear and say, tell him, Walker. Tell him, Clayton. He would say, but of course. Jesus cares. I'm glad no matter what our station in life, I'm glad no matter where we go, how far this life may take us or how far the people we love are taken from us, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. Can I get a witness? A problem has developed in the home of Simon Peter. The Lord is present in the home of Simon Peter. Aren't you glad he does make house calls? Our friend, Brother Steve Dagenhart, when he goes to a church, first week of meeting, he'll, he'll preach that sermon. He preaches, on oh, I'm so glad Jesus makes house calls. And son, he makes house calls. He makes hospital visits. He makes uh, calls uh, when the soybean farmer's plowing his field and gathering his crop. Uh, he, he makes visits out by the dairy barn. He makes visits on the highway. Thank God. Uh, you don't have to be in a church service for him to come by. Thank God when he does come by. And Jesus works a miracle in the home of Simon Peter. Note with me verse number 39. The Bible says uh, he stood over her. That literally means, if you look those words up, the, the, the words that they come from, he leaned over her. It means he's looking her over real good. He's studying her. He gives an intense gaze upon her. One of the last times I saw Daryl Brindle down in, uh, when he was at Columbus, Baptist in Columbus, Back there in the intensive care, the critical care unit, the cardiac unit, they were trying to wake him up. They were going to try to get him off the vent. And they were letting some of the sedation wear off. And and I'd got to where the last months, he and I really just drew closer than we have the years I've known him. And even when he was unconscious, those days when I'd go in, I'd just pull a chair up and talk to him like he's sitting up in the chair. But he was kind of dazed to see he'd come what semi-conscious but I'd talk to him I'd tell him about our services I'd, I'd tell him maybe something about some of you or if I had preached somewhere and what was going on he was uh, very concerned about Amanda and her respiratory issues she had those months and and uh, I mentioned Anna always ask about Anna and the babies I don't know where Warren's at. Miss Sarah, he, he thought she could do without Aaron, and but Aaron couldn't do without her. And then he'd laugh real big, and he'd say, God put both of them together. He loved to pick at those kids, always ask about them. Always ask about Aaron and Anna, knew the girls' names, Lucy, Margin, Holly. He'd ask about every one of them. Anna had taken time with him sometime in the past. But he's somewhat semi-conscious. I'd got right up next to him before I prayed, or actually I did pray, right up next to his ear. And I said, brother, I'm going to pray with you. And, of course, he could barely put a little pressure on your hand to acknowledge you're there. And I prayed with him, and he had not been shaved in about eight days down there. And I said, by the way, big boy, if somebody don't get you a shave, you're going to start looking like me. And he shook his head like that while I was leaned over him. Here Christ is coming to the house, and they, they tell him that there's a great need. Simon's mother-in-law is near death. And he comes in and he stands over her. He stoops over and he looks. And the Bible says he rebuked the fever. And then the Bible says immediately it left her. It's not God's will for everybody to be healed. Now, you know that and I know that. As a matter of fact, we mentioned the Apostle Paul a little earlier in the service. Um, 
you do know that there were those that mocked the Apostle Paul. Some of the reason they mocked him was for his appearance. For example, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Early church fathers tell us he had an issue that ran from his eyes. His eyesight was very poor, and yet God used him. We understand that Paul was a little-built man and uh, somewhat humped over, hunchbacked, if you will. And yet God chose to use him with his infirmities. As a matter of fact, Paul would pin down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, uh, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities and my weaknesses. He lived with infirmities. He lived with it. It's not God's will that everyone be healed. As a matter of fact, whether you believe it or not, you're going to die one day. You don't have to be sick to die, but usually that's the way God calls people out of here. It's weakness and sickness. But when Jesus heals somebody, friend, now they're healed. You don't have to remove stitches when he heals. You don't have to take medicine when he heals. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Revelation 3, verse number 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now, God's pleased to use medicines oftentimes. But here in this text, he doesn't use any medicine. There's no occupational therapy now. Immediately he heals this woman. He's opened a door that no man can shut. The devil himself can't shut the door. The miracle experience, there's the miracle evidence. The Bible says immediately she arose. This miracle is evidence through her strength. Immediately things are different now. The best way to evidence God's working in your life is through your life. You don't have to exaggerate anything. You don't have to advertise anything. You don't need a website uh, to put anything on. You don't try to have to have to try to sell it or draw attention to it. You remember when God raised Lazarus from the dead, the next time you find him, he's seated at a table. We don't have any words, none of the speeches that that may have gone on between Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. All we know is God raised him from the dead, and he was found to be in the place he ought to be living his life. And the Bible says that many believe because of Lazarus. I think about Nimrod over in the Old Testament. Oh, we're seeing this in Baptist churches now. Listen to what, listen to what the Bible says when I get to the 11th chapter. You do, do know who Nimrod is in the Old Testament, a wicked man. He was anti-God. Cain was anti-God. We've already met him, the anti-Diluvian age. We met them that uh, God destroyed the the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. God, God destroyed an entire society with the flood. Then along comes Nimrod and would lead the, the building of the Tower of Babel. The Bible says of Nimrod in Genesis 10, verses 8 to 10, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, and uh, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Arach and Akkad and Kalna and uh, in the land of Shinar. Listen to chapter 11, verse number 4. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Watch this. Nimrod is saying this. Let us make us a name. We've missed it in this work of Christ, haven't we? You know, men are actually talking about evangelists, are actually talking about building a brand. 
Donald, you know singers. I guarantee there are singers in the back of their mind. They may not phrase it that way, but they're building a brand. Do you know one of the evidences that, that Christ is at work is that Christ reigns? Christ is exalted. We have too many celebrities anymore in Baptist churches, Methodist churches. You don't have to say amen to that. I'm out and about enough and witness some of it from time to time. This strength, the miracle evidence, it's evidenced in her strength immediately she arose. It's evidenced in her household. It's evidenced also in the household of faith. What would those of the faith had thought if Simon's mother-in-law got up and never mentioned what God had done for her? What do you think they would have thought if she had never mentioned the name of Christ after all that Christ has done for Alexander McLaren, the old Scottish preacher of yesteryear. He said about this when the Bible says immediately she arose. This is what he wrote in his commentary. She arose. Yes, of course she did when Christ grasped her. How could she help? And she ministered to them. How could she help that either if she had any thankfulness in her heart? I suppose she had the cane helpets. I've had the cane helpets for 33 and a half years. Been in the family for 33 and a half years. I recently visited with my biological father. He didn't. He was in intensive care. He asked for me and my oldest sister. I told about this down at Troy on Wednesday. I think y'all, some of y'all were there. Uh, he's just never had part of our lives, my sister and me. He's just never, he has seven sons and daughters that grew up in Blue Mountain between Myrtle and then up at Blue Mountain. And evidently, he's done them the same way. And as a matter of fact, when his brother, Ly Corpse, when his body, Ly Corpse, United Funeral Home, and and you of me, I, I went to the funeral. I, I knew his brother, Jerry. He'd been good to me. So we'd see one another from time to time. My daddy come right by me about three times. And one of those times when my hand stuck out, he looked right at me. He knows who I am uh, to recognize me, beard and all. He knows who I am. The beard didn't cover it up. And he just kept right on going. He cared nothing about taking time to speak to his oldest son. But I won't tell you something. Now, there was another man was as a father to me, better. I couldn't have, I couldn't have handpicked and ordered and had shipped in a man that's any better than me than Harry Swords was, and I'm grateful. But I won't tell you something. When I was saved, I won't tell you what I needed. I needed two or three things. I needed somebody to love me. I needed somebody to change my life and give me some direction for life. And that man's name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He did that for me. I've not been fatherless since. The miracle extended. I promise you, I'm fixing to bring this to a close. Give me about 10 minutes. The miracle experienced, the miracle evidence, then the miracle extended. Look at verse number 39. The Bible says, she arose and ministered unto them. Now, she touched many that day, and she would no doubt touch many in the days to come. Most believe she ministered as was uh, the custom for women to minister back in those days. That would have been offering hospitality, uh, waiting on others, preparing meals, uh, offering comforts in the home, washing feet, menial tasks, serving in very humble and unnoticed ways. As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the things that really evidences that we've, uh, we've been saved by the grace of God is that we are willing to spend ourselves in humble ways in order to be of service to others. So it is with her. She doesn't try to surrender to preach. She doesn't try to speak in some unknown tongue. Uh, she's not looking for any attention. Sometimes the greatest graces evidenced in a person's life is a mother and a father raising 
boys and girls in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Perhaps it's evidenced in living an honest life, evidenced in, in a prayer life and a, work, a walk with God. It's evidenced that by your own witness and testimony in and out of the workplace or the school. We don't evidence our Christian faith just in here, but we do it in our everyday walk of life. I have to stop. And I'm thinking right now of a dear friend of mine from Randolph, F.G. Tudor. If you know F.G., you know what I'm fixing to say to you is right. When I hired in at Action, it was uh, I, all I'd done in these factories is build frames. And when you hired in at Action, you just went about it differently. You built in what was called a jig. It was a metal frame where you placed your parts so that they couldn't get out of line. And uh, the man I worked beside, we, we built arms in the frame department. I built the left, he built the right for lines two and three of action. And the first day or two that I was on the job, FG, he could tell that this was strange to me. I'd built on two men tables. And he took time out of his schedule. That's a young man's game, friend, I'll promise you. We, we worked. We worked hard. He'd come over and lend a hand. He'd say, you're not used to this, but this is what you do, and if you have any trouble, come get me. And about that second day, I looked at Leon Hollings. I said, I don't know who that man is, but he must be a Christian. He has a meekness and a gentleness and yet a strength about him. F.G. has lived his life before that community in Cary Springs Baptist Church and many others. An afternoon miracle in the home of Simon Peter. Let me give you this, and I'm done. There are evening miracles at the front door of Simon Peter's home, verses 40 and 41. I won't read verses 40 and 41. Let me read Mark's account, Mark chapter 1, verse 32 through 34. Here's where you see they gather at the front door of Simon Peter's house, bringing their sick, bringing their diseased. The Bible says, And at even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of divers' diseases, cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak uh, because they knew him. Verse number 40 of our text. We won't take time to read it again. All the diseased were healed that evening, every one of them. Verse number 41, many devils were cast out of those gathered at Simon's front door that evening. Even the devil speak to Christ, and he silences them as they do. Lastly, verse 42 to 44, the Bible says this, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. These are the morning movements. He left the synagogue, goes to Simon's house in the afternoon, heals his mother-in-law at night. They come to the front door of Simon, heals a multitude, cast out many devils. Then the next morning he rises early before setting out for the day, and he prayed. Mark gave us that in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 35. How do you start your day? Do you start it in prayer? Christ begun his day in prayer before he would go out and embark on anything. He went into a solitary place, Mark would write. The people of Capernaum sought him and they stayed him. In other words, they compelled him. They didn't want him to leave. And such is the case, right? When you've been in the presence of Christ, you ever been in the service and heard the pastor say at the end of the service, 
I really don't want to dismiss. You ever been in service like that? Well, they don't want to leave. They don't want him to leave. Why would anybody want to leave that or leave him? They're the prescribed pathways for Christ. He said, I must, must preach the kingdom of God. He models the Great Commission before us. And then the preaching ministry of the Son of God in verse number 44, the last verse that I'd call your attention to a phrase, three words in verse number 43. He said unto them, I must preach. Before he would go hang on the cross of Calvary and die for my sin, yours, he spent three and a half years preaching, that is simply declaring God's will, God's word. His ministry continues now in Capernaum. I'm glad he's interested in the soul of a man, the soul of a woman. He changes lives. He's changed my life long ago. Let's stand.